So welcome, Adam. Adam, as we've talked during this week, the only word that comes to mind for me is staggering. Just staggering. Depending on what model you look at and what our society does in the next few weeks and months, the final death toll in the United States from COVID-19 is likely to be almost unfathomable for us. So we've both seen government experts like Dr. Deborah Birx and Dr. Anthony Fauci say things like this. If we do things almost perfectly from here on out, meaning maintaining strict social distancing for at least the next month and likely more, we will likely see 100,000 to 200,000 deaths in this country. For context, 200,000 is about the number of U.S. soldiers who have died in World War I, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War combined. I remember how many people dying in Vietnam impacted me as I was their peers. And it was so much less than this. And they're saying the alternative to that, to those numbers, would be if we had done nothing. Or decide to reverse course and reopen everything right away as, in fact, President Trump was talking about as recently as a week ago to pack the churches on Easter and all the rest. But that number, if we had done nothing or reopened, that number, they're saying, could have been 1.5 to 2.2 million deaths from COVID-19. That's more people dead than every U.S. soldier who has ever died in all U.S. wars put together throughout the nation's history. I just find that staggering and all the people who are also adjusting to those numbers right now, all of us in this country are feeling, I think, much the same thing. Yeah, Jim, it's good to be with you. And I think staggering is a very, very fitting word. The other word that comes to mind is unconscionable. I think we should be focused on what we can do together moving forward. But I do think we have to be truthful and note that the reason we are facing, at least a big part of the reason we're facing 100,000 deaths as, quote unquote, a likely scenario, and even in the words of President Trump, a good scenario, is that delay and denial in the months of January and February, even in parts of March, led to a real failure of leadership. So we are at a place now where you know a containment strategy isn't possible. And so now we have to slow this epidemic and we have to reverse the curve. And I think one of the things that Dr. Burke said yesterday, which is also really important to note, is that ultimately this is going to come down to behavior change. We have to change people's daily behaviors, the decisions they make about social distancing, the decisions they make about staying at home. And, you know, that is critical. And what gives me some hope is that the church and our religious institutions have a unique role to play. And I would say an absolutely indispensable role to play in shaping and inspiring and in changing people's behavior to get them to act responsibly and to act in a way where they're loving them, their neighbor by protecting themselves and doing everything they can to ensure that they protect those around them, including the most vulnerable. In a moment like this, 
our vocation at Sojourners, which is, as you well know, to be both pastoral and prophetic, is a deep, deep challenge. When the president describes 100,000 or 200,000, if we reach that, that would be a victory. I couldn't get over that. That'd be a victory that we had done the right thing. That's simply not true. And Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Looking at the truth right now is going to be very hard for us. I, the University of Washington model that's being widely circulated last couple of weeks estimates that in one of the least bad scenarios now before us, we are still likely to see more than 1,000 people die in the U.S. every single day for the next 40 days or so. Now, in tangible terms, many of us, as we learned in our staff meeting this week, already know someone who is sick, hospitalized, or has died from already COVID-19. For some of us, it's members of our families. I have a family that's getting it, one of my siblings, her whole family, one after the other, a new Texas warning, another one has it. And by the time this is over, nearly everyone will know someone who has died. And the thing that hurts me so much is, as a pastor, is most of these people are loved ones, family, elderly, moms and dads and aunts and uncles. They will have died alone with no loved ones beside them. But a medical person, perhaps refrigerator trucks are being asked for for New York City hospitals as temporary morgues. And yet this terrible moment, which we must pastor. How do you pastor people who are going through this like never before? Despite all that, the president is, this president, I would say, is the furthest thing from the kind of leader we need in this moment. By many accounts, the decision to back away from reopening on Easter, his Easter party, was largely informed by the political advisors saying that the death toll in millions would be worse for his re-election or something like that. I, I can't imagine thinking politically, calculating about decisions like this, or if the economic pain continued because of social distancing. Still, he is still not being truthful about the needs of many states for more testing, widespread shortages, many states of supplies like the protective gear and the masks and, and early action would have Everybody would have been surprised by this. All of us have not expected this, but early action quickly could have made such a difference. So how do we remember uh, in a time like this that this wasn't inevitable when we finally reached the other side? How do we change that? And yet, how do we pastor people in the moment when these realities are going to touch literally everybody that we know? That's going to be our challenge. And we want to look at some texts today, some scriptural texts, which maybe will help us to do that. We're reading scripture now in some new ways. And Adam, I've been struck by your thoughts about the Thessalonians text about the church, we, the body of Christ being a body. We're like a body. And the body is going to be suffering at this time. Share with us what that text might mean for us at this time. Yeah, certainly. So I've been reflecting a little bit on this because I remember back 20 years ago, actually, when I gave my first trial sermon in a Union Baptist Church up in Cambridge, and the title of the sermon was Healing the Body. And 
my text was 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth. This is a church that was riddled with divisions around various disputes about doctrine and worship around the resurrection. He was also speaking into a city, a maritime city that was known for its ostentatious wealth, but also for its hedonism and for abusing and exploiting the poor. So into that context, here comes the Apostle Paul, essentially providing one of the most profound metaphors in all of scripture, where he compares the body of Christ or the church to a human body and says that just like when one part of the body is injured or is hurt, then all parts of the body are therefore hurt as well. And they come to the aid of that hurt body. And so for me, there's a really profound lesson in this. I, I, when I first preached this sermon, I was actually in the middle of trying to mobilize political will to fight the global scourge and pandemic of HIV and AIDS, which had reached staggering proportions at that point with millions upon millions of people across Southern Africa that were facing a death sentence in particular as a result of the AIDS crisis. And what I had reflected on is that the way that I think God interprets the acronym HIV, which stands for the human immunodeficiency virus, is actually a, as an opportunity to heal the international village. So HIV, healing the international village. And I think that there's a similar opportunity in the context of the COVID crisis. The way we address COVID is by understanding what Paul is trying to teach us in this text. And I would just quickly, you know, as Baptists always have our three points. So I just want to quickly lift out three points that are based in this text. I think it can be really helpful as we be both, you know, try to be pastoral and prophetic in this moment. The first is that Paul really describes how when one part of the body suffers, then all parts suffer with it. And so what that means is that we, our lives are inextricably linked together. And COVID is showing that in very, very profound ways. So if one person is still infected with this virus, then all of us are going to be affected. And we can't allow this kind of piecemeal approach with, you know, two thirds of the states or three quarters of the states taking this seriously and a quarter of them still not putting in place the stay-at-home measures and the social distancing measures that are going to be so life-saving. So we really all are all in this together, not just as the 50 states of the United States and our territories, but also as a globe. We have to think about this in a global context and also provide leadership and supporting other countries as they grapple with the enormity of the COVID-19 crisis. The second point that I think is really important and helpful is Paul says, that those parts of the body that seem the weakest are the most indispensable. We cannot treat this crisis with a survival of the fittest mentality. We can't rush to reopen the economy at the expense of people's lives. And we actually know that's even a false choice. The only way to really get the economy back and running is to actually reverse the COVID crisis itself. And so this kind of imperative to protect the vulnerable, those with underlying health conditions, undocumented immigrants, the homeless, all of those who Christ describes as the least of these is the absolute way that we are going to help to reverse this COVID crisis. And, you know, we're called to protect the most vulnerable in our midst. The last thing I want to lift up is that Paul calls us to have equal concern for one another. When one part is honored, then all parts are honored with it. And this is kind of the hopeful message. 
that if we can show equal concern for one another, go out of our way to check in on our neighbors, we know, we know we can't do that in close physical proximity, but we can do that through our acts of solidarity. The more that we can go out of our way to care for those that are vulnerable in our midst, the quicker we're going to get through this. And when we come out on the other side, I actually believe we could have a more just and, and, and kind of healthier society at, at the other end of this crisis. And so, you know, one of the things that you know strikes me about the Corinthian church is that it was so divided. And our nation came into this crisis extremely divided, both ideologically, across party lines, across racial lines, even to the point where people from opposing political parties don't just dislike each other, they've actually gotten to a point where they distrust and hate each other. But the COVID crisis represents a common threat that has a potential to unite us around something so much bigger and more important, which is literally protecting the sacredness of life. And so I'm hopeful that as we come through this, if we kind of pay attention to the, the words of the Apostle Paul, and if we you know, really do see our lives as interdependent, if we protect the most vulnerable, and if we show equal concern for each other, we will defeat COVID. And when we come out the other side, we could be a very different nation, a more unified nation. We could help recreate a new economy that's much more aligned with our values. What strikes me, Adam, as you lay out that text, we've all heard in the news things like doctors saying, well, the COVID-19 coronavirus doesn't discriminate. Everyone can get sick. It's so contagious. It doesn't discriminate. But I put a, I'll put a big but there. But indeed, we see how the most vulnerable are, in fact, the most likely to get this in all kinds of ways. And so how do we understand that point about the weakest parts of the body are so critical to our health and our well-being? And we have to honor and protect and lift up the weakest parts of our body, the most vulnerable. All of the frontline people, the healthcare workers are being lifted up as, as on the front lines as our heroes, our saviors in Britain, they're going out and having claps for all the frontline workers. And here they've been also lifted up to healthcare workers making wills, writing wills about the care of their children. At the same time, other frontline people uh, in grocery stores, cashiers, all these people are walking by them. My niece works in CVS and, and she's there all day in the store and no protective gear for for her, a young woman, uh, the cashiers, all kinds of people are on the front lines, often the most vulnerable. And I love what you said about how we act in a time like this will shape the future. So here's another text that may help us understand that better. It's Ephesians 5.16. And it just simply says, redeem the time for the days are evil. Redeem the time, for the days are evil. Now, I want to suggest that our days were evil before this virus hit. The lack of truthfulness, the lack of compassion for each other, the empathy, the division that you talked about, angry, hateful, using fear, promoting hate, and even leading to violence, uh, not disagreeing with each other, but contempt for each other. And the vulnerable were the most in jeopardy during 
the past three years of this administration. The days were evil. Truth wasn't counting. Uh, The poor weren't valued. The least of these were the least important. And yet in the middle of evil days, this virus hits. And it has revealed all the inequities in our healthcare system, in all of our systems, in our relationships, and the access people have to ordinary things. It has revealed all that. Well, if we act in a way that is indeed like we are one body, if we recover that text that you just talked about, that could redeem the time. Leaders are trying to act now in ways they don't know what where we're going or where it's going to end up. It's hard to lead when you don't know where we're going, but how we lead and how we act and how we take care of each other right now will indeed shape or even determine what we will be when we come out at the other end of this healthcare crisis. How do we redeem this time we didn't know we had? Time alone, time at home, time so different than what we'd normally be doing. How do we redeem that time by acting in new ways toward each other that could change us coming out of this crisis? That strikes me as how we redeem that time. If we treat each other by loving our neighbors as ourselves, we're loving ourselves, we're taking care of our families and kids, and we're all looking at grocery stores and food and all the rest. And yet, how do we love our neighbors as ourselves? Because we are loving ourselves and that's good. But how do you love your neighbors in the same way? And how could that change our our whole social context and culture, even our uh, political priorities when we finally come out of this? Right. Yeah, I think that is a really powerful word, you know, and reminder of redeeming the time. I mean, I know for me, I feel blessed that I'm able to work from home and I'm now able to spend a lot more time with my family. I'm not on the road. You're not on the road like we normally are. I was expecting to be doing a significant amount of travel this spring and now I'm getting to be with my family. And so I know that's not true for everyone in the same way, but I have tried to find some silver lining in this in the sense that I am able to not only spend time with my kids in a more intentional way, but I'm now being thrust in the role of a teacher, <laughs> you know, I'm essentially homeschooling my kids. It's not something I ever expected to do. And I'm fumbling through that like many parents are. I certainly don't feel like I have all the training and I'm not well equipped to do it per se, but we're all figuring it out together. And so I think there's a way in which as we try to recreate our lives together, we can, there's some redemption in that. The, the other thing that I, I wanted to emphasize, and this kind of gets in the liturgical season that we're in of, of Lent leading into Holy Week next week and then ultimately Easter. You know, as we all know in our Christian tradition, Lent is a sacred season of denying ourselves, often for many of us of fasting in some way. And I've been fasting every Wednesday, which just happens to be today, as a way to go deeper in my relationship with God and really pray about where we are as a nation. This is inspired by what the elders had put out as a call to repentance, fasting, and prayer in this season that we're in. This is even before the COVID crisis hit. And it strikes me that fasting now could take on a different meaning. We are fasting from social interaction of being physically proximate to each other, literally as a way to save lives to protect our lives and the protective lives of others. 
And that can, that, you know, obviously has, has had huge economic consequences. It has huge social consequences. There are people that are struggling with mental health illness that have been made worse by this, that are lonely, that are going through depression. So we have to find ways to reach those people, come alongside them, talk to them, connect with them you know, using the phone, social media, Zoom, whatever ways are possible right now. But, but I do think that there's this kind of this sacred commitment of shared sacrifice and shared responsibility to take all of these social distancing measures seriously, no matter what age we are. Even if you're in your 20s and you think you might be invincible, we know that you aren't and that your decisions to not socially distance can literally put so many others, particularly the elderly, at risk. And so, you know, I, I think this kind of commitment to deny ourselves in this season, the kind of close social interaction that would be no, a normal part of our lives is a real sacred commitment. And that's something that I'm, I, I would imagine and I've heard many pastors are talking about and sharing. I hope that happens even more because they have a unique ability to try to persuade people and influence them that, yes, this is extremely inconvenient and extremely there's extreme hardship associated with our response to the COVID crisis. But there's also this chance to redeem it in some ways and to engage in shared sacrifice so that we can come out of this together again in a stronger place. Your reference to Lent strikes me. Here's a time of uh, often fasting and prayer and sacrifice. And so on the prayer, this is changing all of our prayer lives. I'm drawn to maybe our final text for this conversation today is Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17. And it has this language we all have heard and often don't know what it means. It says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. What in the world does that mean? I'm learning what it means. I went to the, the Greek language there and it says, it doesn't mean pray constantly because you can't do that. I always heard that text, pray without ceasing. You can't do that. You can't pray constantly. The better way to look at this, the better translation is prayer with regular recurring prayer, prayer that is regularly recurring over and over. And yeah, I have by my computer here on my desk, a pad, a little pad. It's my personal prayer vigil pad. And I'm writing down on that pad, the people I have to be praying for. I want to be, need to be drawn to be praying for. And it's my sister and her family who are asking me, pray that this doesn't enter my lungs because I'm in the vulnerable category. And her kids have it too. And they're trying to figure out how to have it and not make things for mom and dad now worse. Or a dear friend who called and said, one of my best friends just died. Never expected him to die. He was healthy. He was fine. Parents, aunts, uh, one of the people on our faith leaders call Adam, you know, well, she wrote me and said, I'm, I'm trying to listen to this call. And I'm trying to do my work running a nonprofit organization when in Detroit, uh, my father, an African-American older man, uh, is dying. He's on a ventilator. Or my brother went to a mass, his Jesuit mass in Detroit again. And this wasn't reported in the news, but in the mass, uh, his priest is in tears talking about a man from that church who was on a ventilator and they didn't have enough ventilators. And so he gave his ventilator to a mother who was there. 
and said, I've lived my life here. Take my ventilator to keep her alive. This is happening all around us every day. So each of us have our personal notepads of personal prayer vigils that we're carrying on. And I don't know about you, but this is going to teach me a lot more about prayer that is regularly recurring, not just constantly. You can't do that, but recurring prayer throughout our lives. So I'm going to call and my phone is texting because all my family are responding to what my sister has just asked for. So ping, 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 ping on my phone in the middle of the conversation, the Zoom call I'm having with with faith leaders or pastors or people trying to figure out how to feed the kids who are now losing their breakfast and lunch because schools are closed. You're doing all that work while your phone is pinging with new news about somebody you're close to has just been hit. It's going to teach us what it means to pray without ceasing or to pray in a recurring way every day of our lives for these days and weeks and months that are ahead. Yeah, I've been really reminded of the text that calls us to make our petitions known to God with thanksgiving in our hearts. And I'm paraphrasing, but then God will grant us a peace beyond all understanding. And I think part of why prayer is so essential, so vital right now is that this is a time where naturally we should feel anxious. We're going to feel stressed out. Some of us even feel panic. We feel fear. All of those are real and natural emotions, but we have to find ways to replace that with God's sense of peace that ultimately God is, has us in the palm of God's hand, that God is surrounding us with strength and with love, and that, again, together, we will and can get through this. I've been reflecting a little bit on the acronym that has been popular for some time called ACTS, which kind of talks about how in our prayer life we can pray with adoration, we can pray with confession, with thanksgiving, and then supplication. And I think all of those are needed right now. Um, Even in the midst of this, we have to find things to thank God for and ways to adore God. But we also need to confess the things that have been done that we talked about at the beginning of this call in terms of mistakes that were made and failures of leadership and of being in denial or things that we haven't done enough of to care for our neighbor and to be courageous in how we do so. And then of supplication to pray for those people who are struggling and battling the virus in in our country and all around the world, to pray for every public health worker who, as you said earlier, really are the true heroines and heroes right now, putting their lives at risk so that they can save others and ultimately overcome this pandemic. So I think all of those are are really necessary. The, The one thing that I would just emphasize as I was reflecting a little bit on what I shared earlier in terms of the Corinthians text is that when I first gave that sermon back in the year 2000, that was the height of the AIDS pandemic. There were 33 million people around the world living with HIV. And again, a very small proportion, it was something like 50,000 in sub-Saharan Africa, well, it had access to life-prolonging treatments called antiretroviral therapy. So it was a very bleak moment and the, the pandemic really felt insurmountable and invincible in that moment. But because the global community united in many ways, because the church moved from a, a, a kind of posture of condemnation and of judgment to a posture of compassion and a commitment to justice, because many people united 
in advocacy, particularly toward the U.S. government, that ultimately convinced the Bush administration to announce a major new initiative called the President's Emergency AIDS Plan, or PEPFAR, that pledged $15 billion over five years to fight AIDS in Africa. We literally saw a sea change moment between 2000 and 2001, going to 2002 and 2003. And we saw the world unite, essentially, in addressing that pandemic, which literally could have been so much worse. And the leadership of the United States literally helped reverse the AIDS epidemic pandemic all across Western Africa and other parts of the world. And now we've gotten to a point where because of U.S. generosity and commitment, 11 million people are on life-saving treatment, life-prolonging treatment all across Western Africa and the Caribbean. And so I'm just sharing that as a quick story of hope that you know, we know this could be so much worse and will be so much worse if we don't take all of the measures to protect ourselves and others. And that, you know, all the actions we do now literally can be the difference between, you know, what we described at the beginning of this call, 100,000 deaths, which is still unconscionable. But, you know, thinking about 1.5 or 2 million deaths would literally be a disgrace. It would be shameful. And I think it would break the very heart of God. So, I'm hopeful that through our commitment together and through the church being courageous in this moment, that we can get well below 100,000 deaths, but we've got to do it together. And we've got to, we've got to also use our prophetic voice to hold leaders accountable, not just President Trump, but every governor, every mayor who are all putting in place the kind of provisions that we know are going to be necessary to, to overcome this pandemic. The sense we know that this wasn't inevitable. The lives already lost and those we will lose in the next days and weeks and months did not need to be all lost. We know that and we're going to have to speak to that and change that because every life, every life that will be lost is indeed imago Dei in the image of God, in the image of God, and there are going to be people who are close to us. Image of God has died again today and this one was close to us, but you mentioned the silver linings thing before you mentioned that phrase. So my sons are both home, Luke and Jack, and Luke senior at Haverford College is home. He's missing his senior year, his senior semester, his commencement apparently now, and his baseball season, his last season, playing baseball since he was five years old, and he's done with his playing baseball. And so that really hit him hard. That's a real loss. Everyone has personal losses. And yet at dinner one night, I said, okay, who wants to pray? And I just didn't have a prayer in me. I just didn't know what to say. And he said, I'll pray. So here's my son who's just lost his senior semester, his commencement and his baseball season. He's been a baseball kid his whole life. And he says, well, Lord, help us to all understand our losses. It's a time of loss. But the silver linings, Lord, help us to look for the silver linings where we understand better the losses of others and the pain of others and can reach out and, 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 and connect to those people. So a silver lining there was really a pathway to the future, a pathway to how we have to be with each other in the days going ahead. And after this immediate crisis is over, how do we live and act in ways now that will make us different people, different families, better communities, and, and those who really understand that we are in this together? We will 
my friends, we will get through this. And if we find each other in this, we will be better afterwards. We will get through this. And God will take us, if we listen, to a deeper and better place. This is Jim Wallace. Thank you all. Know we're praying for you. May God bless you and keep you and hover over us and around our families, that we can feel your presence and know that we are not alone. Adam, would you say a prayer for us to close out this time together? I'd be honored to. Gracious God, we come before you with heavy hearts. We mourn every life that has been lost so far to the COVID-19 crisis, to the pandemic that is sweeping across this country and across this world. Lord, we are reminded that you promised to never leave nor forsake us, that you are a rock in a weary land, that you are a bridge over troubled waters. And so we acknowledge that we may be weary already of how difficult and at times devastating the toll of this virus has already been on our cities and our communities and on many of the people that we care for and that we love. But we pray that you would grant us solace as we grieve and that you would convict our hearts as we seek to speak life into this moment. Help us to be your instruments of hope, of community, of connection. Help us to heed the words of the Apostle Paul, that we could recognize how this is a, mom a moment and an opportunity to show equal concern for one another. Help us to redeem this time in ways that honor you, that advance your kingdom come. Lord, we pray that you would continue to watch over our families and our loved ones, that you would convict the hearts of our leaders so that they might act with greater courage and in greater, with, with great conscience. And we pray that we would do what is necessary to protect ourselves, protect those around us, and to most importantly, protect the most vulnerable in our midst. Help us to care for them and love them in this time. And so God, we thank you for the ways that you have so much to teach us through this season. And we thank you that Resurrection Sunday is just around the corner, that you have the power to make all things new. So we offer this prayer in the Son of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Liberator, we pray. Amen, amen and amen. Thank you, Adam, and God bless you all. This is Jim Wallace for the soul of the nation.